Hello and welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. This is episode 54. We're your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. So we would uh, first take a little moment and like to thank our listeners for a great last year. Yep. I think we did that last episode, but, um, but yeah. Uh, tell us what you think. Your, uh, I, we would love to hear your current projects that you're working on um, and any topics you want us to discuss, especially at the very end of the show where we you know, talk about like footprints and, and design practices and that kind of stuff. Um, or, you know, just tell us hello. Yeah, we're always open to have a chat with our listeners. Uh, if you got anything to say, any, any kind of uh, requests or, or topic ideas, uh, please shoot it over to us. What's, uh, where can they go, Parker? Uh, our biggest presence is on Twitter, mm-hmm. and it's at Macrofab, so it's pretty easy to remember. Or send us an email at podcast at macrofab.com. Yes, we finally have an email address so you can send stuff to. Right, and uh, that'll go directly to Parker and myself, and we yep. can we can uh, answer you guys. Exactly. Okay, so with that out of the way, um, we'll jump <laughs> out right of the way. In, we'll jump right into the podcast. Um, the Jeep Radio. It is done finally. Whoop. Yeah. So uh, I'm writing an article. And it's actually on my personal blog. It's not out yet. Um, that's the the blog is longhornengineer.com. Mm-hmm. We'll probably cross post it on the MacFab Twitter and all that good stuff. But yeah, it's it's pretty done. I actually listened to it on the way over. The Bluetooth works really well. You, you know what the actually the uh, the most unique part about this project in in my opinion was the fact that it worked the first time. Yeah, it did. There was there's Rev One and it worked. Yeah, just plug it all in, <laughs> turn it on. It's like okay. Yeah, How often do you have a project that works the first time? Uh, one out of how many projects I've done. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> um, and I, I did upload a video to YouTube um, showing how it kind of works and the, you know, general theory and all that good stuff. So I'll put a link below. Be cool stuff. Yep. And then I, uh, another thing I did that I thought was interesting was I modified my Tektronic TDS520 scope, mm-hmm. which is a, a mid-90s. 500 megahertz two-channel scope. It was a um, really nice scope back in the day. Yeah, really nice scope because it's all, well, it's mostly analog. It's got some digital stuff. Basically, it uses the digital stuff to measure stuff. Mm-hmm. So you get all like, oh, the frequency is this and the v- and, you know the peak peak is this and all that good stuff. But it has a, you know, it has a actual CRT in there. It's got an all analog front end. It's pretty nice. Um, the only problem is it uses a floppy drive, which are, when I got it, I actually had to find surplus floppies because no for one pulling, sells them. For pulling data off. Yeah, pulling scre- yeah, data and um, screenshots screenshots and all that good stuff. And I actually found a, uh, a USB module. Well, not USB. It's actually a floppy drive module that allows a USB stick to be emulated as a floppy drive. Mm-hmm. And tested that out this week, and it worked great. Awesome. So, yeah. I'm, it actually looks pretty clean, too. It's right in the slot. It almost matches the slightly f- like yellowed beige front too. Yeah. So it, it, it basically looks like it's meant to be there. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty nice. Um, it's got some quirks, but you know any kind of weird, janky hardware like that is going to have quirks. Basically, oh. it's like a button thingy you have to do on the uh, on the floppy drive to make it. Well, it's sort of hacked in. Yeah, you basically you plug a USB stick in and press one button, and then the red light will come on, which means I, I have no idea what it means because all the instructions are in, are in Chinese. 
there's actually no English instructions for this thing. Oh, so you just kind of had to figure it out? Yeah, I actually had no idea. I just kept pressing buttons until I finally was able to get an image off the USB stick. <laughs> so, yeah, you plug it in, press one button, the LED turns red, and then you, you can write to it then. And then you press another button, and the red light flashes, and then the USB stick flashes because, like, stuff's getting written to it. Okay. And then when it stops, you can pull it out and then put it into your computer, and you have the, uh, I think it's like T, what's T-E-K format? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's their, their, the image format that they it's use. It's an old school, uh, old school format, early, you know, mid-90s, early 2000s. For, I don't think anyone uses that format anymore. Man, actually, like okay, bitmap. the first job that I, that I had, we, we had a scope that was fairly new, but for some reason it still had a floppy drive in it, and it used all T-E-K uh, formats and so it sucked having to get screenshots, which we used to do for uh, presentations and things like that. Uh, so yeah, no, I'm. I mean, even in uh, that that job, I I took it in 2009. We were still using floppies to yeah. pull our data off. I mean, like Windows still natively can open a TEK. It's uh-huh. just I don't I don't know what kind of format. It's probably some raster based format. Yeah, yeah, I think it is. Um, but they're very maybe it's like a compressed bitmap. But the only place I've ever seen it is for scopes. Nah, I used it when I was in high school um, for newspaper. We had that format. T-E-K? Yeah. I can't remember what we used it for, but I remember that extension because when Steven's actually going to look it up on his computer phone. Computer um, phone? Is that what they're called now? That's what they're called now. Oh, wow. (laughs) Um, I remember seeing it there, and that's when when I actually pulled the image off the scope the first time. I'm like, oh, I recognize that format. So he's looking it up right now. You wanna you wanna entertain them with something else while I, because DEK sounds like it would be like a Tektronic file format. No, it's but it's not. Are you sure? Pretty sure. <laughs> Let's see here. I. There we go. Is it compressed bitmap? Wait, basically? wait, wait. Wikipedia, which is never wrong, by the way. Okay. Check uh, the sources. Let me see here. Speaking of sources, you know what Wikipedia just banned this week? What's that? Uh, was it? Daily Mail, the UK like publisher or newspaper. Is it mm-hmm. Daily Mail? I can't remember. It's not a valid source? It's not a valid source on Wikipedia anymore. No. Chris no. over there is nodding his head like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, what, you know what would be really funny is if <laughs> Wikipedia banned itself from being a source. Well, yeah, it can't self-source itself. But, I mean, if you have, you can source to another Wikipedia page on a Wikipedia page. Can't you? No, you can't. You can link, like, you know, like it's like the seven degrees of, of Kevin Bacon, where, like, how many jumps does it take between actors, and you can always get to Kevin Bacon within six jumps? Six is actually pretty far. Yeah. But, yeah. But um, that's the the idea is is you can't – you can link to a Wikipedia page, but you can't, like, say – you know, Stephen is a electrical engineer at Macrofab. Source Wikipedia. You can't do that. You have to say source macrofab.com slash about us. Right. Uh, so a long time. Well, I mean, the thing is, I'm not really finding good information. Maybe my Google Foo is Maybe it's bad. not dot T-E-K. Maybe it's something else. Well, T-E- uh, so here's a website. I, gosh, the URL is really messed up, so I won't say it. But it, but it says the tech file format is, stands for ASITIC technology file from the University of California at Berkeley. Uh, whatever. This isn't probably that important. But uh, especially if it's that hard to find. <laughs> 
Yeah, I'm actually looking at. Um, let's see. Because I did see a Wikipedia page that said That's it was a right. Tektronics hex nope, file. We're wrong. It's not TIFF. Oh, TIFF. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, TIFF has been around for a long while. Yeah. But yeah, no one okay. really uses it anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it started with a T. I mean, whatever. I swear, but but <laughs> TEK files do exist, and they're Tektronics hex files. But that's not going to be an image. No. Was, would that be like the waveform you save off of it? Like the actual, like... I guess you could save it in hex, right? Yeah, you can save... I don't know if you can save it in hex form, but I know you can save, like, the values of the wave in its entire, like, memory bank. Mm-hmm. You can dump that. Hmm. So... Oh, so you can just uh, import it to Excel or something like that? I knew you were going to say Excel. Okay, a spreadsheet <laughs> program. <laughs> Excel is like, it's like Xerox and like like Kleenex. Well, of course, yeah. Yeah, it's just, just de facto but okay, name okay, for okay. a spreadsheet so, program. So right now, name some other spreadsheet programs. Open Office. Google which Docs. is a clone of Excel. Google Docs. Which is a clone of Excel. <laughs> Oracle, right? Sure. I, I guess, guess you can say I guess you can crap. say my se- well in terms of grid format or or you can say my sequels kind of like a spreadsheet. Well, the, I I think the point of that is that's why everyone says Excel because everything else is a clone of Excel. Yeah. Maybe the same thing with Xerox. Was Xerox one of the first ones? I don't remember. I, probably. I wasn't old. I wasn't born then. <laughs> right. <laughs> Okay, so moving on. Yeah, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, l- let me go into the stuff that I've I've been doing. Yep. Uh, so we talked about the synth that I've been building. Um, the PCBs are supposed to arrive hopefully next week. And um, I'm going to build them by hand because I hate myself. <laughs> uh, no, no, I actually... No, I, you're even hand soldering the SMT instead of pasting it. You know, the, the, there's a reason I don't want to paste it is because... Well, okay, so I have this big fancy uh, pick-and-place machine that I could use if I really wanted to, but then I'd have to put everything on feeders, and I'd have to load it all up just to make one little board, and I'd have to program all the stuff. And so I'm just kind of like, hey, you know, I want to make it. And, and at the same time, uh, it would be lead-free at that point. And I, I like lead in, <laughs> uh, in, in, in my solder. So I'm going to build it by hand, uh, mainly because... I don't know. It's just this. This feels less like a professional thing and more like a personal project. Well, it is a personal project, but it feels more like one of those just like I'm having fun on a Saturday kind of project. Gotcha. Uh, so I'm just gonna throw some tunes on and and build this board from scratch by hand with an iron and tweezers. The old school way. That's the right. That's pre macrofab right. days. So I and I also had an idea on it. Um, I was like, why not? If I'm gonna build this by hand, why not just time-lapse it. So I'm going to give that a shot. Uh, do a time-lapse video of me building this thing, and it's going to be multiple sessions. There's no way I'm going to do this in one sitting. So we'll give that a shot. I, we'll see how far that goes. Uh, it yep. could be fun. Throw a little YouTube video up. Yeah, the... Um, you know, speaking of leaded solder, yeah. I wanted, I need to look into what kind of solder NASA uses. Because the NASA and aerospace... They're allowed a small percentage of lead mm-hmm. in their lead-free formulas. I think it's like it's like less than one percent, but basically it's just enough to get some of the really good stuff that lead has, like the good qualities. Basically, like no tin whiskers and 
you get slightly better flow uh, on, on and it SD melts cards. at a lower temperature. It's easier to work. I don't with. know if it's that because sub one percent, maybe, but yeah, it's just so easy to work with lead. Yeah, I like leaded solder. Too. Yeah, we should look into that. But too bad we'd have to have an entirely different line to have leaded solder at Microfab. You almost have a have to have a separate room to yeah, make almost. sure. Yeah, make yeah. sure you don't get cross contamination. It's uh, with, with with how prolific uh, lead free re- the requirements are. It's, I mean, it, it's pretty much just like forget that lead even exists. Exactly. But but for personal projects like this, yeah, it's fun. Oh yeah. And and when I fix customer gear like audio gear, nobody cares uh, if if they have. Leaded well, all the crap stuff. you have to fix is pre nineteen eighty. So, oh well, I mean, I, I, yeah, yeah, the majority for sure. So, so it already has lead in it, so it's just that much easier. Yep. So, uh, I don't know if you remember. Gosh, I think it was one of the first projects I built personally at Macrofab when I started. But, I, but I made a transistor matcher, the VCF, right? Uh, well, uh, the, I, I plan on using it for a VCF, a voltage control filter. Uh, so yeah, the transistor matcher. Um, That's right, I remember that. It, it has like the, a little um, ZIF socket on it, so you can plug transistors into yeah, it yeah, yeah, and yeah. a bunch of it. So I built this this precision li- little board um, that that allows you to put two bipolar transistors into it. Um, you can you can match NPNs and PNP transistors, and by match I mean you're you're getting their their VBE and um, their gain their gain about yeah. You, you get that to within a, a really small percentage, and it works well for uh, a handful of circuits. So how does that – we actually didn't talk about is how does that actually work, that transistor matcher? So get this. So, so um, what I have is a precision current source on the board, or a current sink, actually. So you put the two transistors in. Current sink, so like just a high-precision resistor. <laughs> actually, it's a high-precision resistor. It's an op-amp that, that turns on a transistor in a feedback loop. Such that uh, it 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 knows it forces the transistor to pull a specific amount of current, and the transi- uh, the resistor I have in place has a really high tolerance, so I know to within a certain amount of percent uh, what the current is I'm pulling. So here's the thing: I have the emitters on two transistors tied together, and the bases on both trans uh, transistors are set to ground. Uh, so. Basically, what happens is I, I, I can pull... Uh, I'm sorry. The emitters are not tied together. They're, they're, they're tied together through some resistance. So I pull a specific current through both transistors in parallel. And what that does is it develops a voltage across uh, some high-precision resistors on the emitter. And then you use a differential amplifier to... And I can, test, I can test the difference of the VBEs on each transistor. Neat. Uh, and you want that difference to be as low as possible. And uh, I add a ton of gain to it afterwards, mm-hmm. such that I can take that very small difference and look at it in terms of volts and as opposed to like microvolts. Uh, and so I think I have enough gain such that like 10 millivolts is equal to one microvolt, something like that. I can't, I can't remember exactly what it is. I'll have to look it up. But regardless, I just try to make that, that number as low as possible. We should um, post that design up. I think yeah. people will be interested in that thing. You know, I, it, it might be on our GitHub. Maybe. I don't I, I guess it's been a year since oh, that it's, episode. It's actually been so. longer than a year. Yeah, so the, the the whole reason why I'm saying this, um, so I've got this transistor matcher, which is a totally super manual device, but I'm going to use that for my voltage control filter. 
which is a Moog style um, transistor ladder filter. If you haven't seen those, go check out the schematic. It's analog heaven. It's absolute magic. So uh, you can use um. So for this for this VCF, you can use SMTs. Steven Match Transistors. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> they have really long legs on them, and you put them in through holes. <laughs> yeah, no, so, uh, so I got to match. I have to, I have to get six transistors that are matched pretty close. Uh, and instead of, like, putting a threshold and saying they have to be this good, what I'm going to do is I'm going to buy 100 transistors and pick the six best match transistors out of 100. Out of all that batch. Right. And go from there. So... Thought because we're working on well, we're waiting on the PCB for the greatest resistor in the world. Yep. Um, could you do the same thing with a bunch of transistors? Uh, or a big ginormous grid array of transistors? You okay? So, so one like if you took an entire reel of you know thirty nine oh fours, yeah, and then made. A grid of 2,000 or 20,000 of these things. The only thing that I can think right now why that would not work well is because they're BJTs and they would have base current, and each one of them would need enough base current to turn on such that you'd have to dump, like, 10 amps into it just to get 1 milliamp Why not? Let's just try that. <laughs> sure. I would almost say, like, let's do that with, uh, with FEDs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do, do uh, I think we have some house uh, part BS one seventies and see if it just makes a better FET, like in terms of tolerance. An ultra FET, ultra FETs. So we're gonna TM. end up with, we're gonna end up with these boards that are like eighteen inches by ten inches <laughs> that just end up being fundamental components. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but there's we know the exact spec of them. <laughs> yeah, but they're yeah. a certain percentage, I guess. Yeah. The BJT one would be interesting because you would probably be able to handle an, an an enormous amount of current with it. But just to turn it on, you would need an, an enormous, enormous amount, amount of current. current. <laughs> turn it on and just like the lights, dimmer. I don't, you know, I don't know what happens when you put tons of BJTs in parallel. That we we should look into that. That'd be fun. Well, I don't know. These are the things. I think they just share the current, more or less. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, you can't share current that way though, because it's physically electrons uh, uh, and and holes uh, basically combining in the base junction. So you need enough electrons and holes moving. Mm -hmm. So for every every transistor you add to this, you need that many more electrons to to match with holes. It would make sense that it would work on a FET. The only thing that's in, uh, that's funny about that is you would end up adding the capacitance of all the gates on those FETs, you could actually make a good capacitor with but all the no, gates. No, then you put series in parallel, so the capacitance cancels out. Huh. So you get a really high-tolerance gate capacitor. Yeah. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a weird prospect. Yeah, it's weird. I bet <laughs> you it would take, I actually think it would take forever to turn on, though, because you still have to pump all those electrons to turn those gates on. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. No, you'd have your to inrush current for this thing would be enormous. It would be, it would, yeah, it would be stupid. <laughs> you can't run it off an or off an. And the window. board probably wouldn't turn on all at the same time. It would probably turn on all randomly, all over the place, and you'd get within weird, a couple like nanoseconds. But yeah, but you'd get weird current spikes that go through, and all kinds of weird artifacts. Yeah, that sounds. You would need. Like you basically would need a really, really high speed. 
I wonder if you could do it with um, enough hall sensors. So you had this entire grid of MOSFETs, right? Mm-hmm. That's set up in series and parallel. And then so you, when you turn it on, you put hall sensors all under it, under it so you can track where the spikes and current are, are at on the board. And what... Uh, what so is that way you can see how, how it... Oh, I think you were saying, like, track it so that you could, like, redirect current. No, 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 no. But track how when this thing turns on is what is the paths that the, the current's actually taking. Wow. Now you're getting into some crazy stuff. Because <laughs> I was thought, like, well, you could just use a high-speed thermal imaging camera, but I'm like, well, we're talking, like, the spread difference would be, like, 10 nanoseconds, which... Right, and, I, and I'm sure the heat difference yeah, would be Yeah, you won't get tiny. the heat difference at all. Right. So you wouldn't even capture that. Yeah. You'd have to see how the current is actually flowing. Yeah. And I don't know if 10 nanoseconds, if that's actually the number. Like, can you actually make hardware fast enough to detect that kind of a difference Hmm. in a, like, repeatable fashion? We're going way off in the weeds in this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) All right, let's keep going. More down the list. Okay, okay. So, great, yeah. Matching transistors for the voltage control filter. Yeah. We'll, we'll give a schematic of the filter. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, the open PLC that we've talked about in some previous episodes, um, we're actually using one right now. Uh, we're going to be using it in our hand place bench. Um, so, right outside of our pick and place, uh, our, our uh, conveyors take our PCBs directly to a bench where we do some post-processing, we do some hand-place work. If if there's parts that the quantity just works out, we'll place them by or hand. Or really funky SMT parts? Yeah, or so, something that our machine can't physically place, uh, which isn't much, but they do exist. So regardless, we've been um, developing this bench and all the controllers for... Uh, the, the, the belts that move the conveyor and things like that, all of it's controlled with one of these open PLCs. So yep. um, Parker and I have been kind of developing a box that holds all this stuff, and it's been a lot of fun making that. Yeah. I, I really like the tweet I took of you, the picture of you, where you're like you're holding the entire DIN rail. With My DIN rail battle axe? Yeah. DIN rail <laughs> battle, uh, battle axe. Yeah, we need, we'll have to throw that picture up. Yeah. So, um, and one of the reasons why I said that is because I just got... Uh, um, accepted to a special project here in Houston where I will probably be using one of these PLCs. So uh, we're going to try to get uh, some of the other guys who are involved in this project on the podcast. We'll see if they're willing to be guests. But there Maybe may be week. one of these going into a museum here in Houston. Woohoo! Woo. So that's, uh, that's what I've been working on. Awesome. So RFO. So this week we're going to talk about have we gone too far with RGB LEDs? Mm-hmm. Second topic is Samsung must be a bunch of pyros. And three <laughs> That's is, gotta be great. Yeah. Computers that can survive the surface of Venus. Awesome. So yeah. Um have we gone too far with RGB LEDs? So a lot of computer manufacturers, like comp- not computer manufacturers, but computer equipment manufacturers for like enthusiasts. It's kind of weird to say that. Um basically gamers, I guess. Uh, where they had like flashing lights on their keyboards, oh, like crazy motherboards. Yeah, so Razer, which is one of these companies, mm-hmm. they came out with the what's called the Chroma Mug Holder, and it's a mug, it's a drink holder that's about an inch tall and about three inches in diameter that has a ring on the bottom that has it's, it, you plug it into your your back of the computer so it's USB controlled mm-hmm. and it's got RGB LEDs and 
The craziest thing about it, so you can figure it like in the Razer app on your computer, so what color it is. Really? Yeah. Wait, is this Razer like the same Razer that does uh, clicky keyboards and stuff? Yep. Okay. So they make this thing. So they also make like like a mouse pad that does this too. But the thing about this is it's got a pressure sensor in it. So it knows how often you're drinking. And so if you haven't picked up your drink in a while... It flashes the, the to remind you to you know drink your energy drink or whatever. Oh gosh, <laughs> you're kidding me! No, I'm not kidding you. Stay hydrated while gaming. Yes, <laughs> because you might forget. <laughs> you might forget to drink <laughs> while you're pony noobs. <laughs> oh my gosh! So the question was, have uh, we gone too far with RGB LEDs? Yes, yes, we've gone too and far. I actually was kind of interested because I'm like. Oh, if it had like a built-in like chiller or a heater, that'd or be a awesome. stir bar or something like that. Well, I usually drink beer when I play video games, oh, so yeah. I like I might like to keep my beer, you know, cool for a little bit. Because sometimes, you know, if you're pony noobs really well that night, you might not get <laughs> enough chance to drink your beer because you're only in between matches, right? Or when you die. Well, that see, that was one of the best parts about <laughs> Counter-Strike is because if you died early, you're like, damn, I died early, but I get to drink. <laughs> so, yeah, kind of a useless thing, kind of cool. I, I, I won't buy one. <laughs> I don't see it. <laughs> I, what I can see is this coming in like a package with a, uh, a computer case. Oh, it comes with the keyboard and the mouse. Yeah, like... You wouldn't buy this by itself, but it it might make you buy their product because it comes with the. Oh, it comes stuff. with it. Yeah. yeah. Now included, fancy mug holder. Yeah. My 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 <laughs> wife hates my desktop tower at home because we have it in our bedroom. Is it all LED'd up? Well, it's it's blue. It looks like a nuclear reactor when you yeah, look down in the. <laughs> it's got, it's got the stupid blue LEDs that are on the peripheral of one of the big fans that's on the front of the case, and it just glows. And it probably sounds like a blue. wind turbine when you turn it on. Actually, it's pretty silent. It's not the sound. It's the fact that the room is blue. <laughs> <laughs> See, my my gaming computer is just in a four U rack mount. Yeah, it's like uh, the most boring case ever. But guess what? It works great. Oh yeah. Okay, next topic is Samsung might just be a bunch of pyros. Um, basically, they had a fire break out in the Chinese factory that builds their lithium batteries this is for their fantastic. Samsung Note 7. And they're like, it's just a small fire. And they have a picture of it, and it's like on, like, the entire building's on fire. Oh, yeah, they have, like, a distant shot, and yeah. the sky is all black. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, and they said in the article that it was due to the batteries, the batteries burning up. Batteries burning up. And... I mean, this is a company that can su- somehow figure out how to make a, a machine full of water catch fire. Yeah. Yeah, a washing machine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Samsung, you know, fire is cool and all, and it's awesome to look at, but <laughs> people don't really like their houses burning down. It sounds like Samsung's getting burned. <laughs> There's your pun of the night. <laughs> Terrible pun. No, how, how do that, like... It sounds like when they're they're getting they're they're down on their luck and they're getting kicked, you know, like yeah, exactly. The publicity from this has got to be terrible. terrible. <laughs> yeah, but I, I yeah the 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 article the article specifically stated that it was like it's just a small fire. It's all right. Yeah, no, it's all right. Only a couple people died. <laughs> Full disclosure: nobody died. 
Are you sure? That's what it said in the okay, article. Okay, so you actually read the article. I just read the the tag, the <laughs> clickbait. <laughs> so you just you just read the clickbait and like, oh, people died. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it looked awful. <laughs> yeah. It, so it you can actually bad. say that was a win for safety regulations in terms of making sure everyone got out of the building alive. This fire took place in China. There are no safety regulations. <laughs> actually, they said something like 117 firefighters had to show up. That's not a small fire when no, you need 117 firefighters. Or maybe they just heard Samsung and they're like, oh shit, send everyone. <laughs> oh shit. <laughs> so or the hope- Chinese equivalent to oh shit. Here's the thing. I hope that Samsung gets a break sometime soon. I really do. I have a Samsung phone. I like it. It's, it hasn't blown up yet. I'm I'm wondering if I need to get a fireproof bag at Macrofab for you to put that phone in. <laughs> yeah, every day. I have to deposit it in the bag. Yeah, at the front? Please yeah. deposit Samsung phones. <laughs> It'll lower our insurance. <laughs> yeah. All right, and, next topic. Yeah, third topic is computers that can survive on the surface of Venus. Now, this is crazy. This is awesome. Um, the problem with sending, like, because we send, like, rovers and, and stuff like that to Mars all the time. Probes. Um, and that's hard already because you have a lot of radiation, um, big temperature swings because there's no atmosphere. Bunch of problems like that. Venus has the opposite problem mm. where you have a very constant pressure and temperature, but it's so extreme. Well, the, the atmosphere is acidic. It's, yeah, you have, well, that's actually the easy part, because you just coat everything in, like, chromium, or something that's very resistant to acidic. But uh, it's super hot. Yes, uh, the surface of Venus is 470 Celsius, and that's around 480 degrees Fahrenheit for us in the United States. 878 Fahrenheit. I rounded up. I okay. said 880. Okay. If I didn't, then that's what it was. Okay. Right. Um, that much. And it has 90 atmospheres, which one atmosphere is what we experience sitting here in the recording studio, which is around, or on Venus, 90 times that, which is 9 megapascals. Wow. Yeah, it's insane. So that's 9 times 10 to the 6th pascals. So every... Th- Every possible right. thing that yes, makes electronics like that. not work, it has. It has. Um, the longest surviving man-made object that landed, and it's still there, we think, unless <laughs> something took it away. It's just a melted pile of crap, though. Yeah, a melted pile of crap, but it's still there, yeah. is the uh, Soviet lander, uh, what is that, Venera? Yeah. Venera 13. Uh-huh. Uh, it landed there, and it actually lasted 127 minutes, and it was able to take the only colored photo we have of the surface and transmit it before it died. <laughs> um, I think a couple of the ones beforehand, like one landed and the the lens cap melted. So the, it, the lens cap didn't pop off. Oh. Uh, and a lot of them didn't survive just from the insane environment they landed in. And so what brings this up is now we kind of have electronics that can survive that kind of environment for a long period of time. Um, there's been a lot of advances in uh, electronics made of uh, basically silicon carbide, mm-hmm. which is super hard, very resistant to heat and pressure and all the stuff that makes life hard on And Venus. radiation hardened? Yes. Yeah. Um, but the problem with that is, sure, you can make the dye really hard, but you still need to be able to connect to the circuit board and all that stuff. Right. Well, um, 
Before, NASA's yeah. Glenn Research Facility, they solved that problem by basically making really high temperature. Um, they didn't really say. It was just interconnects. And I'm like, okay, that's probably gold bonding or wire bonding to the dye. It's basically welding on a really small scale. Yeah, but they actually made those that those connections to be really high temperature now. Yeah. So they can survive it. And they they basically built a oscillator and they put it in the gear G E E R which stands for the Glen Extreme Environmental Rig. Hmm. And basically it can simulate the pressure and temperature on Venus. And they ran it for 521 hours and they actually had just turned it they just turned it off cuz it just kept going. Kept going. That's great. So but now we have an oscillator that can work on Venus. Question is, can it uh, can it withstand all the G forces and the vibration to get there? Yeah, I'll probably work on that next. <laughs> probably. Well, they just build it now to space. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. Have Have you heard about? Okay, so I, I I watched a documentary a little while ago, or maybe it was like a PBS something or other. Regardless, they were talking about life on Mars, not Mars, Venus, uh, and they were saying that. Venus may actually be a, a decent place to go and colonize because you can almost create these uh, like floating cities yeah. because of the, the cloud coverage is so dense you can actually float things yeah, on top of it. And you, they actually were um, I don't I didn't see that one, but I, what I was reading about is you can possibly make structures that float. You know, here you like a like a, a zeppelin or whatever you have to use lighter than air, right? Hydrogen. Well, not that anymore, but helium. Right, right. Um, but on, we had problems with hydrogen. Yeah, on all the humanity. Um, <laughs> but in Venus, you could just use normal air mixture: twenty-five percent oxygen, seventy-five percent nitrogen, and you'll float. And you will float right. pretty well, actually. Um, and it's actually interesting because the the density where that would float is around the temperature range that humans are livable in exactly it's it's a little warm i can't remember the exact number but it's like okay you know we experience that here in it's, houston it's a couple times a year yeah. <laughs> right right um so. it's, it's a pretty novel idea and you actually still have protection from harmful rays from the sun yep uh so it's they i've heard claims that that might actually be easier than setting up life of, on mars because i think on mars pretty much you have to go underground that way that gets you out of the cosmic radiation. Yeah, yeah. Or you have to have some kind of shielding of sorts. Yeah. Or somehow we can... Because Venus actually has an atmosphere. It's horrible, but it's an atmosphere. Well, I think it also has a magnetic... Um, field? Field, so it can it can protect itself from the cosmic radiation. Its own version of Van Allen belts? Yeah, I yeah. think so. Um, which would make sense, and that's why... Um, I think it's one of the reasons why Mars lost its atmosphere is because it lost its magnetic field. That's right. And so it got basically the atmosphere get, keeps getting stripped off from the cosmic radiation, and then you don't have an atmosphere anymore. Right. It, it's, a, it's a runaway effect. Yeah. The opposite of what happened on Venus. Venus has the runaway effect where it holds onto its atmosphere and it's hot as hell. Yes. Cool. This is now the MacFab astronomy product. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually surprised how much we actually knew about that. I think we're mostly correct on those facts. I don't. We're we're nerds. We we usually hang on to these kinds of yeah. Things. These kind of things are weird. <laughs> um. So that will do it for the RFO. Yeah. Yeah. And this is actually a section that you've been you headed up last time. Yep. It's the well, two weeks ago. 
Yeah, it's the Footprint Files. Ooh. Yeah. Um, properly marking parts with silkscreen. Uh, last time we did this, we did diodes. That's right. And so this time it's capacitors. Ooh, capacitor. Yeah, so... Another um, confusing one. Semi-confusing. Um, so I guess we'll just run down... There's a, only a couple different kinds of capacitors out there yep. that are important. Mm-hmm. Um, so first you have ceramic, which are not polarized, so you don't really have to worry about too much about you know how to mark them. Well, okay, uh, real quick. If your capacitor is not polarized... It actually helps to not put a polarizing mark, mark on, on the it. board. Yes. Don't make it confusing. Yep. Um, so that's basically the only non-polarized capacitor. I guess film caps, too. Yeah, but, but both of those are really easy. Yeah. Um, so the ones that actually have problems are polarized capacitors. Yep. Now, electrolytics are pretty easy. Mm-hmm. Um, the convention is they're usually, usually negative striped. Negative marks. Lots, which tons is, of asterisks around the word usually. Usually. Um, which is the cathode. That's right. Yes. Um, so they're usually cathode marked, negative mm-hmm. marked. Mm-hmm. And on the silk screen, what I usually do, it depends on what the cap is. Yes. Um, if it's surface mount, I usually, basically what I'll do is I'll put a plus mark on the anode side. Yep. And then I'll put a mark on the cathode side filled in yep. to match the base, stripe the stripe that's on the top of the S&D cap. Because S&D caps usually don't have a stripe down the side. It's just on the top of the can. Right. Well, okay. So a little, bit, a little bit of reference to the article I wrote about diodes. The, the, there is nothing that can be better than looking at the data sheet of the part that you're expecting to use and... Marking your footprint that way. Exactly. So this, so it's the exact same thing applies with capacitors. If your capacitor is marked on the cathode side, uh, in terms of like if there's a stripe on the on the capacitor, put it put a marking the side the stripe would be. Yep. And then when it comes down to us, as in Macrofab or any other contract manufacturer, we'll know how to place it. Exactly. But because um, we actually like, I think it was for the longest time we were like it's electrolytic. It's always cathode marked, except this one time. <laughs> right, right, right. right. <laughs> like, I think I, I can't remember the part number off the top of my head, but I have to dig through the chat logs mm. and figure out which one was actually anode marked because it just like blew, it actually had a stripe, and instead of negatives, it had pluses on it. <laughs> yeah. So okay, the one rule that doesn't actually apply all the time, of course, because it's electronics and nothing always applies. If the capacitor is the shape of a box, in terms of like a twelve oh six style. Oh, we're talking about case style. Case style. Yeah. Like if it's a, if they call it literally a box capacitor, like tantalums or like electrolytic surface mounts. You forgot one. Uh, ne- neobium. Is that ne- how you pronounce that? Neobium. 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 Uh, they're usually marked positive. Yes. But if it's a circle, like the s- traditional electrolytics, they're usually marked negative. Usually. I, no, no amount of asterisks <laughs> can be on this. Because here's the thing. Don't trust a footprint ever. Never Always trust. look at the data sheet because yep. you know what? Here's the thing. It gives you the answer. The answer is right there. 
Yes. And I really like the the diode one you did two weeks ago because you pulled up a data sheet for from the same company. Both of them were red LEDs. Yep. And there was one difference in the part number. Yep. And one was anode marked and one was cathode marked. And it was one of those, like, I want to go to that. I think it was or Omron. Omron? Uh, I don't remember. It doesn't exactly. matter. Yeah, it doesn't yeah, matter. Yeah, yeah. We should go over there and just, like, say no. Yeah, no. Don't do that. Roll up a newspaper and hit them. Be like, bad, <laughs> bad, bad, bad LED manufacturer. <laughs> no, no. Okay, and, and here's the thing. When I was writing that article, I, I went to uh, Mauser to search because I was trying to find an LED where one was anode marked and one was cathode marked. It took me no time to find that. It's not <laughs> like I searched for hours. It was like the first search. The exact same manufacturer Two different LEDs. One was called Super Red and one was called Hyper Red. Almost exact same part number. One letter difference. One's anode marked. Which one was cathode marked? marked. Uh, I think the Super. I think the Super was cathode. Hyper Red was wrong? I think Hyper Red was wrong. (sighs) Yeah. But but regardless, it's like That's really awesome come on. Was it was it just like <laughs> some guy screwed up on their manufacturing floor and put the die in backwards and was just like, uh, 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 well, make an anode mark. <laughs> put a errata in a diode main, a diode data sheet. Well, no, and, and, and go look at the go look at the uh, article that I wrote. I have the PDFs side by side. They are nearly identical. Uh, it's yep. just literally there's one that has text that said anode, one that says cathode, and capacitors are the same. Yep. In this kind of field, electrical engineering, making a PCB, uh, accuracy is key. You yep. have to look at every data sheet and make your footprint such that it works that way. Exactly. Yeah. Well, it's not like, again, it's not like software where you can still might you be able to use some software because there's a bug in it. But hardware is completely different. If that, well, di- if that LED is backwards, you can't use it. Here's the Most thing. Most of the time. You put an electrolytic back in backwards, and they blow up. You put a tantalum in backwards, they catch fire. Yeah. It's not You put good. a battery in backwards in your Samsung. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then all of China burns down. <laughs> um, Diodes backwards is not the worst, though. No, no. no. Um, I-, I want to do a little quick jaunt on... on the reason why I brought up... Uh, was it Neobium? Uh is that how neobium? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, which I've never used. Well, because they've been really hard to get in the states. Mm-hmm. The reason why they exist was back in the '60s, and we started doing uh, Bell Research Labs. Started doing, this is around the time t- uh, tantalum capacitors came about too, and they're actually they're cheaper than tantalum because it's, it's easier to get that element um, than than tantalum. Is and it is it neodymium? Uh, no, I don't know. <laughs> um, anyways, the reason why is actually in Russia, that's what you'd use. Because Instead they have, of tant? Well, because they don't have a lot of tantalum for earth metal. Interesting. But they have a lot of neobium. Ne- neobium. Yeah. Neobiumism. <laughs> Whatever that is. Yeah, element that. Um, oh, he's going to look it up real quick. No, yeah, yeah. This is the problem of being an engineer. Like, I don't know what it is, so now I have to figure it out. Yeah, I should have put notes. <laughs> um, yeah, that's that. They use them over there, and there's actually only a couple manufacturers that basically make them available worldwide now. And it's only been the last couple of years you can get them. But I was thinking mm-hmm. because they do have slightly different properties and tantalum capacitors. Is what if we made an audio amp or an audio effects pedal 
that uses tantalum capacitors and then swap them out for these niobium capacitors huh. and see if there's any actual, like, well, actually, can we hear a difference? Or can we actually run, like, a one kilohertz sine wave through it and see... And, and detect And do, something? like, a frequency sweep and see what the output is and see if it actually differs at all. Interesting. And we'll try to match them, like, you know... It's 100 UF, and it's got the same ESR or close enough to an ESR, et cetera, et cetera. Try to match as many parameters of the caps as possible, and then do blind sound testing and see what people think is the best. Russian niobium or American tantalum? Uh, Chinese tantium. <laughs> yeah. So uh, niobium is a... Tantalum. It's, it's a fundamental element. Okay, so... Number, number 41 on the periodic table, and... Uh, tantalum is also a fundamental element, and it is number 73. Yeah, I think it's one row down. Is it? Uh, yeah, you know what? Actually, they are... Um, uh, tantalum is directly below. Yeah, one row down. Uh, right, right. But What's yeah. below that? Oh, jeez, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't have the actual... I have, a, I have a periodic table that doesn't have the, the numbers. It just has the location circled in there. Oh, uh, but but the, but here's the thing: both of them are transition metals. Yes. So they're not a full metal, and they're not they're not like silicon, where semiconductors are. They're in between. Well, that's why they use them for this kind of stuff because right. they're in that weird area that they can both be uh, they can be a dielectric or be a, a metal, depending mm, on how many electrons sense. you pump into it. Right. Right. Makes sense. Let me let me let me see here. So. Of course, I have my computer phone uh, available right here. Uh, so, oh, geez. I do not know now. I was, I don't know what the, the, the letters are for tantalum and for, and for um, niobium because they're not like N-I and T-A or anything like that. Well, I guess we'll just close out the podcast then. Okay. Because <laughs> we had nothing oh, left titanium. I think it's titanium is below. Um, but titanium is not a transition metal. I don't know how that works. I'm not a chem- chemist. Chemist was, was uh, chemistry was rough for me. So we would love to hear from our listeners and tell us what <laughs> is below um, these two elements on the periodic table and let us know why. Well, I guess we can look up why they use tantalum and nubium. I think it's because they're a transition metal and they probably work really well as dielectrics or something like that. Um, no, they work on a fundamentally different level than, than electrolytes. They're not dielectric. They're just a... Like, I found it. Okay, I found go. it. Uh, so, niobium is 41. Directly below that is tantalum, which is 73. And directly below that is 105, which is dubnium. Dubnium. That's one of those fake ones that they make for, like, 10 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> fake ones. <laughs> It is. It, uh, it, it's not exactly in that wedge where they have to like pull it out of the. Oh, fair, so it's like, not. It's not the actual like. But it's really close. Really to close that. to one of those. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um. So yeah, um, I'll go back to what I was saying earlier. Then, before yeah, please. You, yeah. Please. Um. So we would love to hear from our listeners. Tell us what we're doing wrong. What we're doing right. Yeah. Um. Or more of what you want to hear. Yeah, more of what you want to hear. Do you want us to hear us be wrong all the time? Then you can just complain to us. Well, no, just just let us keep going. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> and you can complain to how bad we are at this show at the Twitter handle at Macrofab or our email address podcast at Macrofab.com. And it's not up yet, but coming soon, we'll be trying to figure out how to make comments work on our blog because they're actually like hard disabled in the code. <laughs> Um, so we're trying to figure that out. It's WordPress, but for some reason, the comments are disabled in the theme we have. We, we, we'll get it in there. Yeah, so we've got to figure that out. Yeah. Um, so we'll have comments soon, TM. <laughs> um, and that yeah. was episode 54 of the MacFab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Josh rises from the grave. <laughs>